Modern smartphones are sleek and thin, but they're also fragile and expensive. If you're really careful, you may use it until you're ready to upgrade without shattering the glass. But if you look around, you'll see most phones wrapped in a case for protection. Our personal data is even more valuable than the device it's stored on, and it deserves just as much protection. The work that I do requires me to travel a lot, which means I'm frequently to connect, connected to unfamiliar networks. Nefarious hackers can make up to $1,000 selling the data of each of their victims on the dark web, and there are cheap hardware and software tools readily available that let even a smart middle schooler snatch your data without you even noticing. A virtual private network, or VPN, like ExpressVPN, creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your devices and the servers that you're transmitting data to and from. When you're, when you're sitting at the airport gate area, or airline lounge, or even your hotel room, those Wi-Fi networks aren't secure. Your bits are flying through the air, and whether you're checking your bank account balance, sending data to a client, or just checking your email, bad actors can snatch up your usernames, passwords, and everything else you send and receive if it's not encrypted. The layers of security used by ExpressVPN would take over a billion years to expose by bad guys with some of the most powerful supercomputers. ExpressVPN trusted server technology also runs each session in memory in a unique virtual space that is wiped clean as you end your session with none of your data ever written to a hard drive, so there's no residue for anyone to recover about what you were doing after the fact. ExpressVPN runs on almost all devices, including Windows, Mac, iOS, Linux, Android, streaming devices like Chromecast, Roku, Fire Stick, and Apple TV, and there's also a Chrome browser extension. It's super simple to use. Once you install ExpressVPN, it's one click to establish a secure encrypted tunnel with servers in 105 countries around the world. I've personally been paying for and using ExpressVPN for years on all of my personal devices. When I, started, when I first started using VPNs for work more than 20 years ago, they were often slow and unstable and had to be restarted frequently. But with ExpressVPN, data speeds are virtually unchanged from running fully exposed, so you can just turn the VPN on and leave it on. I often get materials from clients and companies that are, that are under embargo or NDA, and if it leaks out, I can get into some trouble. But even if I just wanted to reach back to my personal server to grab some files, check my email, or watch something that's only available on one of my streaming services at home while I'm out of the country, ExpressVPN lets me do it all securely. Your data is valuable. Don't let bad actors steal it and potentially misuse it. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash wheelbearings. And you can get an extra three months free when you sign up. Expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. And thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting wheelbearings. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Sam here. Between my travel last week and Dan's family schedule, unfortunately we didn't get a chance to put together our new episode, but we will have one in just a couple of days. In the meantime, as part of my day job as an analyst with Navigant Research, I do a lot of speaking at conferences. 
And today I had a chance to deliver a keynote on the ADAS and Autonomous Landscape at the TU um, ADAS and Autonomous Conference in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, just for, in case you're not familiar with the term, ADAS is Advanced Driver Assist Systems. So that's things like um, lane keeping systems, adaptive cruise control, and so on. Uh, so I had I recorded the presentation and I'm putting it on the feed right now to tide you over for a couple of days until I get until we get a chance to put together a whole new episode. Talk to you soon. Bye. Uh, my name is Sam McWall Salmon. I'm a, an analyst, senior analyst with Navigant Research, uh, based here in the Detroit area, and I cover um, the mobility space and propulsion systems, so automated connected vehicles and electrification and other things. And just a quick intro to Navigant, we're the market research arm of Navigant Consulting. We cover four main areas with market research, energy, utilities, building innovations, and transportation, which is where I work. And just to uh, get things kicked off, as I was pre uh, preparing my presentation uh, last week, I realized that um, this week actually marks 32 years since I first arrived in, in Flint, Michigan to start my engineering studies at, at GMI. Things have changed a little bit since then. My first semester, one of the things that one of the classes I had to take was a drafting class, actually sitting at a board with a T-square, pencil, eraser, and uh, you know, that, this was actually something I'd already done in high school, so I got through that class pretty easily. But I'm, I'm sure, I haven't gotten back for a while, so I don't know if they still do these classes, but by the time I graduated from, from GMI, things were already changing pretty rapidly. And my first job I went into was working on ABS systems and the, the first ABS systems were the precursors of the, the technologies that we're, we're talking about today um, with uh, driver assistance and, and then for, you know, driver automation system, or dri automated driving systems. Uh, Bosch and Mercedes-Benz introduced the first electronic ABS systems in 1978 uh, on the S-Class, and then it quickly progressed from there. Um, five years ago, Ford um, made a, a bit of a splash when they introduced the current generation Fusion by bringing a full suite of driver, advanced driver assistance technologies to a mainstream model, and, but it was it was available with you know, adaptive cruise control and lane keeping systems and blind spot monitors, but it was still fairly pricey to get the full suite. You're talking somewhere between $2,500 and $3,000 additional cost on that on a mainstream family sedan, but now it's rapidly becoming uh, ubiquitous with uh, the 2018 Camry and Toyota Camry and Honda Accord, now getting those a lot of those technologies as standard equipment on every single one they build. Uh, so if you go to a dealer and buy a, a mid-sized family sedan now, a new one, you're likely to get those technologies included no matter which model you buy. Uh, so the, the, we, among the things that we do at Navigant, you know, we look at um, forecasting how the transportation market is going to evolve. And our current forecast for um, light-duty vehicles, looking out to 2035, we see some continued growth, although it's, it's going to be slower than it has been at some points in the past, uh, growing at about 1.7 million, or 1.7% uh, to about 122 million vehicles annually by the mid-2030s. But that's about where we expect it to peak. Beyond that, we're going to I believe we're going to start seeing a pretty significant drop off in annual sales as automated vehicles and mobility services increasingly take over the marketplace from personally owned vehicles. For automated vehicles themselves, our current forecast, our most recent forecast that we published this summer, um, we're projecting uh, level two vehicles, so-called level two vehicles, which are 
starting to become more commonplace in the market now uh, to be the dominant one, dominant technology through at least the mid 2020s uh, with level four, level three, level four uh, vehicles starting to come into place by 2025, 26. Uh, we're, we're expecting by 26 about nine million level four vehicles annually <coughs> being sold. Um, start, you know, starting very low you know, numbers, uh, 100 to 200,000 range in, in the early 2020s, but escalating pretty rapidly. And then towards 2030 is when we expect to see the first real level five vehicles starting to hit the marketplace. We're, we're a little more conservative in our forecast than some people. You may have seen uh, some recent studies uh, from um, particularly an economist from uh, Stanford uh, working for RethinkX projecting that 90% or 95% of all uh, vehicle miles traveled would be in automated vehicles and, and the, the market for new vehicles is gonna collapse by the end of the 2020s uh, with everybody driving automated vehicles. We think that's a little over enthusiastic. We will get there eventually, but it's probably not gonna be by 2030 just because of the some of the realities of trying to make safe, robust systems uh, that, that can actually work in un un all environmental conditions. So what we have available today is semi-automated semi vehicles. Systems like Autopilot and Cadillac's new Super Cruise system that's just going on the market now. Autopilot's been out there for a couple of years now. Um, when it came out, uh, it, I would say it was absolutely the best driver assistance system available at that time. Um, in the transition from the version one Autopilot to version two, Tesla made some stumbles. Uh, and the current system is debatable whether it's even as good as the first generation system was yet uh, because they basically completely rebooted and decided to do everything in-house. Uh, Cadillac uh, right now is launching their, their Super Cruise system on the CT6, uh, which is also a level two system. And I actually just spent a couple of days last week uh, driving a CT6 uh, from Cleveland to Chicago to Memphis, about 900 miles over a couple of days using Super Cruise. And I would say that right now, Super Cruise is the, the best uh, semi-automated system on the market today in terms of its capabilities and more importantly, its robustness and safety features. Um, Super Cruise is the first system on the market that actually meets uh, all, of, all of the recommendations that came out in the recent National Transportation Safety Board report on the Tesla crash that occurred in May of last year. GM uh, is the first manufacturer to actually introduce uh, geofencing as part of the system to make sure that, um, to try to um, maximize the probability that drivers would only be able to use it in situations where it's actually appropriate, where the system is capable of operating properly. So working with uh, the uh, team from Usher, uh, we've actually got someone here from Usher today, um, they uh, did a hunt, generated 160,000 miles of high definition maps of divided highways across the US you know, when, when Tesla launched Autopilot, they said, oh, you're only supposed to use it on divided highways, but they didn't actually put anything in there to make sure that you couldn't do that. GM has actually done that. They've also included a driver monitor system that in principle is actually pretty similar to what Apple's doing with, um, with their Face ID system on the upcoming iPhone 10. Uh, it's not as high as resolution as Face ID because it's, it's not being used for authentication, but it's, it's only being used for tracking your, your um, facial motions and, and your direction to ensure that you're actually paying attention to the road. It's a, Super Cruise is a completely hands-off system, so when it's active, you can put your hands on your lap or do whatever, well, do 
things other than holding the steering wheel, put it that way. Uh, but you do have to keep an eye on the road and be ready to take over in the event that the system encounters a situation that it can't deal with, uh, such as a lane ending or coming into a city, you know, or when you, uh, or if, uh, for example, one, one of the limitations we did find with Super Cruise uh, is with the driver monitor system, because it's using an IR camera that's mounted on the steering column, it actually, if, when we were driving out of Cleveland in the early morning with the sun shining in over our shoulders, uh, the, camp, the, um, the sunlight was actually blinding the camera, it was flooding the camera with, with light, so it couldn't actually see our faces when it was looking at us because it was getting overwhelmed by the sun. Once the sun got up a little higher in the sky, it worked fine, but that's, those are the kinds of things that manufacturers are gonna have to learn to deal with to make the systems more robust. So one of the, uh, things, one of the studies that we've done at Navigant uh, and that we do on a regular basis in a lot of the topic areas we cover is our leaderboard reports. And uh, when we do our leaderboards, what we do is we, take, we pick a particular topic area, in this case, automated driving, and we take a selection of who we think are the top companies in that space, and we rank them, we score them on a variety of criteria, ranging uh, in, in within the um, strategy and execution uh, areas. And we try to come up with a robust scoring system that um, reflects which companies are most likely to be successful, at least based on what we know at that point in time. So it's a snapshot in time, you know, and it's not a guarantee, but based on where things are at the time we do the scoring, it reflects who we think has a chance of success based on all of the pieces that they're doing. In this case, in terms for um, automated driving, the criteria we looked at uh, their strategy, we look at things like the company's vision. Those are areas where companies like Waymo and Tesla obviously score extremely high. They have a, a tremendous vision for what they want to do with automated driving. Uh, Go-to-market strategies. These are things where uh, I think some of the, uh, some of the traditional manufacturers uh, have some advantage, but there's also advantage for some of the startups. Uh, partnerships. You know, we, know, we realize that nobody's going to be able to do all of these pieces alone. You've got to have a good network of companies that you're working with to do things like the mapping, the sensor development, software, compute platforms. Uh, production strategy, this is you know, an area again where incumbents tend to, have a, uh, tend to have some advantage because of the fact that they do have a, a, a manufacturing infrastructure in place already. Technology, the, the, core, the core technologies, and again, this is an area uh, where, for example, we think you know, Waymo, we actually scored Waymo the highest overall in their technology because they've developed a lot of the, the core technologies to make automated driving a reality in-house, really, really um, optimized specifically for this task. They, they started off doing their development with, uh, with uh, off-the-shelf components like Velodyne LiDAR sensors and, and radar sensors from other manufacturers. And they went from that and gradually designed their own systems that were truly optimized for the automotive application. And then execution, sales, marketing, and distribution, production capability, product quality and reliability. That, that particular category is one where we actually mark down Tesla quite a bit uh, because they have had a, a, a quite a record of spotty reliability with a lot of their systems. Uh, product portfolio and staying power, financial stability of the company. You know, um, are they, you know, is it a company that's likely to be able to stay in business for the next five, 10, 15 years or are they in danger of potentially being bankrupt uh, within the next you know, 18 to 24 months? And based on that, we came up with, with these overall rankings 
this year with um, GM and Ford at the top, uh, with Daimler, Renault, Nissan close behind, Waymo, um, VW, uh, and a lot of the, um, the traditional OEMs and some of the big suppliers scoring quite well. Some of the startups, um, companies like, uh, like uh, Uber, for example, uh, from what we've seen of them, their, their technology, their capabilities were uh, perhaps not as robust, not as capable as some of the other systems that were on the marketplace. And so what we saw as some of the drivers for success in this was particularly the focus on developing a lot of the core technologies in-house and having, uh, having a lot of the IP and the capabilities to develop all these things internal. Because one of the, the key factors we think uh, with developing, with bringing automated driving to market, um, as, as we go forward, we believe that most of these vehicles um, are going to be used for mobility services, um, in part because uh, the cost of these systems, particularly in the early years, is going to be very high relative to conventional vehicles. And there's also going to be concerns with liability, product liability. The reality is, you know, while the, the goal ultimately is to get to a place where we have zero crashes and zero fatalities from transportation, the reality is that's not going to happen for a long, long time. Um, automated driving will probably be much safer than human drivers, but um, there are going to be issues, you know, whether it's software bugs, hardware issues, and so have, um, having that, um, the, both the financial stability and the uh, awareness of what's in your system to, in order to make sure that it's working properly and it's reliable, is going to be crucial to success. And so this is where we think companies, uh, some of the, the incumbent manufacturers, as well as even companies like Waymo, which have good financial stability, and they're, they're, they're developing all the technology, so they know every piece that's in there. So when there's a problem, they can fix it. And if, there, if there's an issue, if, if there's a crash that happens, um, They'll, they'll be able to, um, to get that addressed and follow up on that fairly much more quickly. Um, the other component that's going to be crucial to the success of all of this, uh, to making automated driving a reality, is development of mobility services. And so you know, we've got certain mobility services companies that are out there now, you know, like Uber and Lyft and DD in China and Get, as well as car sharing services like Zipcar and ReachNow. But um, increasingly, we think that a lot of these services are, again, going to be brought, like the technologies, are going to be brought in-house by the companies that are actually uh, producing and deploying these vehicles. So uh, that's why you see, for example, uh, Waymo you know, launched their, um, their ride hailing, uh, an autonomous ride-hailing pilot program in uh, the Phoenix area earlier this year, their, their early rider program. Uh, you've got companies like uh, Ford uh, acquiring Chariot and developing other ride-hailing type of platforms internally. You've got GM with Maven. Uh, you've got most of the big manufacturers uh, having uh, their own mobility services of various kinds in-house. BMW's ReachNow, Daimler uh, with their efforts, VW with their Moya division. And those are going to be crucial. Uh, and for those companies retaining ownership of the vehicles and deploying them through those services, um, I think is going to be increasingly important. One of the interesting things that happened earlier this year, uh, last spring, Supreme Court uh, made an interesting decision in a case involving Lexmark with printer cartridges. 
And while that may not seem like it has anything to do with automated driving, I think it actually does. Uh, because essentially what that case did, when they ruled that um, once a manufacturer sells a product to a consumer, they no they've exhausted their patent rights and their IP over that product, and they no longer can control what happens to that product. In doing that, they effectively enshrined the right to repair in law, which means that when you buy a vehicle, you can take it and do whatever you want with it. You can modify it. You can put some third-party sensors on there. You can go in and hack the software. The manufacturer may not be responsible for it. They may not be liable for it. may avoid the warranty. That's all well and good. But the reality is if, if somebody does that, if something happens, uh, even if the manufacturer is not ultimately legally responsible for that, from a consumer perspective, that can actually have a lot of blowback, negative blowback on the manufacturer because people aren't necessarily going to associate that with whatever the owner of that vehicle did. They, they're going to see that you know, uh, a, a Chevy Bolt, an autonomous Chevy Bolt, got into an accident because somebody modified the software or put some cheap third-party uh, replacement sensor on there after they had a little fender bender. And so I think this is going to drive manufacturers, particularly in the early years, and perhaps for the, for the duration, to retain control of these vehicles, either through their own internal uh, fleet services or through fleet services that they have very tight partnerships with. Uh, so you know, we, we see a number of relationships between manufacturers and companies like Lyft. That, you know, so Lyft is partnered with Jaguar Land Rover, General Motors, Waymo, um, Ford, uh, oh, and Newtonomy. Uh, those are the ones we know about so far. And you know, I think through those kinds of relationships, they can retain tighter control of those vehicles, make sure that they're properly serviced and maintained and updated. And that's going to be important to the success of this technology. Uh, so some of the top companies that we had in our rankings, companies like Nissan, uh, they're introducing this year their second generation LEAF uh, and their first North American application of their ProPilot Assist system, which uh, is also a level two system that controls steering, longitudinal and lateral acceleration, so steering, braking, speed. Uh, their system is not quite as sophisticated as what uh, GM is doing with Super Cruise or even what Tesla does with, uh, with Autopilot. Uh, it, it will keep the vehicle in the lane, but it, will not, it doesn't allow hands-off control. Uh, and, but they are, Nissan's also doing some interesting things, some of the work they're doing with uh, NASA Ames uh, Research Center in Silicon Valley with uh, taking some remote control of vehicles when an automated vehicle gets into a scenario where it doesn't know what to deal with, if it encounters a construction zone, for example, then uh, they can, it can hand off uh, temporary control to a remote operator that can see the, the, a live view from the sensors and provide some guidance you know, for where it should go to get around that construction zone and then share that information with other vehicles in the fleet. Interesting premise, not sure how scalable it's gonna be once we start getting large numbers of vehicles deployed, but it's an interesting idea. And GM, or uh, Nissan, uh, and their, their now chairman, former CEO, Carlos Ghosn, has been very aggressive uh, in both uh, in terms of deploying electric vehicles and now automated vehicles. He wants to get level four vehicles on the road uh, from Nissan and Renault by 2020, 2021. Uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, Daimler, you know, obviously, you know, is a pioneer in um, uh, electronic safety systems. Uh, they've shown a number of concept cars. They're also working in heavy trucks. Uh, with automated driving, which is going to be another one of the early um, areas where we think uh, automated driving is going to make start making a real difference is in, in uh, long distance trucking. Uh, 
General Motors has been looking at automated driving since the 1950s, you know, with the, uh, the Firebird 2 concept. There's a pretty cool video that's available online. Uh, you can see a promotional film from uh, 1956 uh, showing the kinds of things that we're just starting to do now with the family driving down a highway, handing off control to a remote operator, and turning around and playing a game. Uh, and of course, uh, BOSS, which uh, was the, the handiwork of a team from Carnegie Mellon University with some help from GM. Uh, won the DARPA Urban Challenge. And a lot of the people that worked on, on the BOSS program, uh, that Chevy Tahoe, that automated Tahoe, uh, went on to other programs. You know, there's quite a diaspora from that program working at a variety of companies that are in this space now. People like Chris Ermson uh, went on to Waymo and then uh, now is heading up Aurora. Um, and Brian Stileski, who is the CEO of Argo AI, which uh, got a big investment from Ford earlier this year. And then, of course, um, the, the Envy concepts that were first shown at the 2010 Shanghai World Expo uh, for autonomous urban mobility vehicles. And uh, now the latest generation autonomous Chevy Bolt that they're working with, uh, with the team at Cruise Automation. And GM's been particularly aggressive with their efforts on the Bolt. In just 14 months, they've gone through three generations of automated uh, prototypes. And they have what they now claim to be um, a essentially a, a, vehicle, a system that's ready for mass production. Uh, that's debatable, which I'll get to in a little bit more in a minute. <coughs> but they have at least um, uh, incorporated some redundancy into the system, which is something that I've ne uh, neglected to mention talking about SuperCruise. One of the things that GM's done with SuperCruise is building redundancy into the system <coughs> in terms of their, their compute platform, the, the sensors, but also even some hardware redundancy, for example, their steering system. Um, they, as part of the Super Cruise package, they also include active rear wheel steering, which is part of another package on, this, on the CT6, so that in the event of a primary uh, steering failure at the front wheels, they can actually use the active rear wheel steering to continue guiding the vehicle uh, down the lane safely until the, the driver can take control and, and bring the vehicle to a safe stop. And of course Ford, uh, which was involved in the first wave of the DARPA Grand Challenge, uh, they were among the first manufacturers to test automated vehicles uh, in inclement weather conditions, doing testing here at M-City in Ann Arbor uh, in, on snow-covered roads. Uh, they're on their next generation of uh, autonomous fusion prototypes. They're doing a lot of work in services development with Chariot. And they're also experimenting in some different areas now. Um, they've part recently partnered with Domino's to test one of their automated fusions to uh, do food delivery, automated food delivery. And what they're looking at there is primarily the user experience, how people are going to interact with these vehicles. What, when they walk up to one of these vehicles, what are they gonna do? How, how are they gonna get whatever it is they're getting from that vehicle? So um, there's gonna be some interesting learnings from that. And I think that's gonna be one of the crucial things to making a viable business out of this is to maximize the utilization of these vehicles by using them for a variety of different uh, purposes. And one of the interesting possibilities is if, if you have <coughs> vehicles that are designed um, specifically for um, mobility, you can optimize them to make them flexible for a variety of different applications, which I'll get to in a, little, in a moment. But for mobility um, to work, we need to have an ecosystem. We can't just make a transition you know, overnight from human-driven vehicles to automated vehicles and expect everything to be wonderful. Because when we do that, when you add automated vehicles to the mix, now all of a sudden you're going to enable mobility for a lot of people that, that don't uh, necessarily can't or, or, or won't drive today. 
uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and we have the potential to dramatically increase the number of vehicle miles traveled and actually make problems with congestion worse if we don't handle it properly. So one of the things we need to do is make sure that these vehicles are integrated as part of a mobility ecosystem that includes uh, a variety of different types of vehicles for different applications. So you get right-sized vehicles, uh, including things like bicycles, uh, automated shuttle services, uh, mass transit for high-density routes, and even you know maybe someday things like the Hyperloop uh, for long-distance travel. But it, it's, all, it's all part of a multimodal system that needs to be thoroughly integrated. So you know, when, are, when are these automated mobility systems going to uh, become a reality? Well, we think it's going to be a while. You know, it's, it's going to be at least the mid-2020s before they really start to take off. And in the first half of the decade, the number of vehicles is going to be very limited. The areas where they can operate is going to be limited based on the technology and, and making sure that infrastructure is in place in terms of communication um, and the, the road infrastructure so that um, these, these vehicles can operate reliably and safely. But as we get into the latter half of the 2020s, we're going to see much more rapid adoption of the, uh, of the vehicles. And eventually, you know, as we get into the 2030s, the, the overall vehicle park is going to start to decline as individually owned vehicles get replaced by automated vehicles that are, are transporting more people using fewer vehicles with higher utilization. So uh, by mid-2020s, probably no more than 1% uh, adoption of automated mobility services, but we will see significantly higher adoption of other types of mobility services relying on human-driven vehicles and drive vehicles with driver assist systems. And then gradually this number will start to increase uh, over time. And you know, we're going to have a variety of different kinds of services. So we'll have you know, things like um, inner-city travel using services like TestLoop uh, that give you point-to-point -point, uh, service and uh, things like peer-to-peer -peer types of services possibly uh, with that are being pioneered by companies like Turo. Uh, this latter one, questionable how, how, how much adoption there's really going to be of that. Um, not, I'm not sure that beyond some early adopters that most people are actually going to be willing to let their cars be used by strangers, but we'll see. It'll be interesting to watch. Um, and then there's also uh, other types of models that are being tested out right now. I was talking with Grayson Brolty earlier about Cadillac Book, which is an interesting uh, experiment that Cadillac's been doing with a subscription service where you pay a one-time fee, or a flat monthly fee, and you have access to any of the vehicles in the Cadillac fleet. Um, right now, there seems to be very limited adoption because, in part, Cadillac has a limited product lineup right now. Uh, but there's other companies like Clutch that are experimenting with a similar model, but ra rather working across dealer groups. So you have a variety of vehicles from different manufacturers, different brands, and different types of vehicles, so you have more selection, and at several different price points. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Volvo just announced their Care by Volvo system uh, with, um, uh, that is a, essentially a subscription model, uh, similar in concept to Apple's iPhone upgrade program, where you pay a monthly fee that gets you access to a car, insurance, maintenance, and every 12 months, you can get a new car and just keep turning over the car every, every, every 12 months. Um, so some interesting ideas being experimented with out there. Um, these mobility services are also um, going to require, you know, even, even if they're electric vehicles, they still require some basic maintenance. You know, yes, electric vehicles don't need uh, oil changes, they never need oil changes, but they do need tire rotations, tire replacements, new wiper blades, other parts break, you know, the cars get into little fender benders, and so they do need to be uh, maintained. And so there's some interesting business opportunities 
outside of the manufacturers and the service providers uh, for, for OEMs, if they're running a business, uh, a mobility business, they can partner with their existing dealer networks to provide some of these services. We've seen Waymo partner with Avis um, to maintain their fleet of automated test vehicles uh, because Avis has an infrastructure network for servicing rental vehicles. So there's, there's some interesting possibilities there. Uh, we could also see things like, uh, as we get into geofenced uh, mobility services uh, with electric vehicles, battery swap could actually become a, a viable option in that case where now you have enough vehicles at scale um, with homogeneous uh, fleet of, of uh, homogeneous type of battery where it could actually make sense to do battery swapping um, or uh, well, the battery swapping um, because you um, you want to have these vehicles on the road you want to minimize the downtime so you don't want to you don't want them sitting around too long charging uh, so swapping could be an interesting possibility as could fuel cells because you can get the vehicles in and out fairly quickly, uh, either with a new battery or fill up the hydrogen tank, and there's they, you don't actually need very many swap stations or hydrogen stations to service one urban area. Uh, similarly, vehicle to grid could also start to become uh, a viable option uh, with uh, automated mobility fleets because uh, if you look at how vehicles are used during the course of the day, you tend to have some peaks and troughs, uh, peaks in the morning and afternoon when, when people are commuting and then a little bit of a trough in the middle. So you could park some of those, you could park some of those vehicles, plug them in. And one of the things that's limited adoption of vehicle to grid uh, integration so far is that you have a very heterogeneous fleet of vehicles. You have multitude, you know, 3,000 different utilities with all the different systems across the United States alone. Uh, but if you've got a larger fleet of thousands or tens of thousands of vehicles that are more common operating within one urban area, now you could, how you could integrate that with a single utility. You, can, it, it's, you have enough scale that it makes sense to start doing some of that kind of integration. And in the, in the middle of the day when you've got a trough in, in use of the vehicles, you could put those, some of those vehicles onto the grid and have them as a, working as a buffer when you've got peak electricity load. Connectivity is going to be crucial for all these vehicles, both for mobility services for deployment, but also for um, ensuring that um, the, the automated driving capability is as robust as possible uh, by extending the situational awareness beyond the line of sight of the sensors. So you want to have B2B communications in these vehicles. Uh, and then you've also got to deal, there, one of the reasons why we think that um, the adoption of automated driving is going to be a little bit slower than some, a lot of people project is because of some of the real world situations you've got to deal with, like weather. So these two vehicles on the left, um, you know, are both vehicles that I've driven in the last couple of years in, in winter conditions. You know, um, when those sensors get covered with snow or slush or salt spray um, or dust, if you're driving around in Arizona, they become blind. And so now your automated vehicle can no longer drive itself. So you need mechanisms to address that. One of the things we've seen is, is Waymo's little demo here of this wiper washer system to keep their uh, sensor dome clean. Uh, but there's, you know, it's, that's going to be problematic too uh, because now you, you potentially have to use a lot more fluid, uh, washer fluid, uh, to keep those sensors clean. It's a lot more crucial to keep those sensors clean so they can function than even for your uh, windshield when you're driving. And of course, security is going to be a major issue. We have to address the problem of, of cybersecurity, both in the vehicle, but also even more importantly at the cloud level. Because if someone manages to penetrate 
the data centers that control these fleets of vehicles, sends out a command you know, to all these vehicles to turn left now, and you suddenly have a million cars turning left simultaneously everywhere, uh, that could create chaos. Or you could have you know, financial attacks, ransomware type attacks. So that needs to be addressed um, you know, before we have a situation like what we've just seen with Equifax. So we've got to rethink the role of the car in the city, have different types of vehicles that are right-sized um, through these mobility services. So when you've got individuals that need to get from one place to another, they can take a smaller vehicle, smaller physical footprint on the road, and then you could also have larger vehicles like vans. You can have these automated shuttle services that we're starting to see being piloted now. Uh, the, the Navia Arma that's uh, going to be running in Ann Arbor soon on the U of M campus. Uh, the local motors Ollie. Um, Next Transportation's got um, some interesting concepts for a modular, uh, modular automated shuttle. And one of the things you could potentially do with some of these vehicles, as well as, you know, you, as, well as just adding the automated driving technology, is rethinking the interior of the vehicle. What if you had a vehicle with a, a, a slide-in modular cabin that at certain times of the day could be a passenger uh, cabin, other times of the day could be for cargo. So a lot of, still a lot of work to do, a lot of interesting uh, possibilities for where this could go. What do I drive? A 1990 Miata. Because just to keep myself balanced, and when I'm talking about automated connected vehicles all the time, I wanted something highly analog. All right. Thank you for your attention. Any questions? I don't know if I have any time left. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.